since we are having a baptism today, I looked and realized it had been some time since we talked about baptism. So I thought we would do that today. If you'd like to turn with me, I'll be in Luke, the third chapter, Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, I want to read verse 2 through 22 to start with. During the high priesthood of Ananias and Clephaeus, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the reason around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cast down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whosoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. And he said to them, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioned in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, And for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, he was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And that, if correctly read, is... Luke chapter 3, beginning with verse 2 and ending with verse 22. And so to take a look at this today, to talk about this event that we will be partaking in shortly, to have a baptism. And I want to go back and I want to look and see here in verse 3, it says, He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. 
And this is really important for us to understand. And I'm afraid that this concept of repentance is absent in much preaching and teaching today. And in fact, dare I say, if I look at a lot of uh, tracts or uh, uh, information that people produce to tell people how to be saved, repentance is almost always absent. And I think that reflects mightily upon our society today. I can tell you, I myself don't like to be told that I'm wrong. Most of us don't. And to tell someone that they need to repent implies that they've done something wrong. And I think sometimes we are very soft peddling the gospel. We try to be very approachable. We want to uh, make everyone feel good and approach them in a happy way. And so we water down and leave out this concept of repentance. But I tell you today, I think it is absolutely essential for salvation. Repentance is very, very important. Now, we sometimes conflate two words in our modern language, and I want to define both of them and ask you to think about them for just a minute. The first one, we've mentioned this before, is to be sorry. That's something we will say if we bump into someone at the grocery store, if we get that close to anybody anymore. It's something we might say when we get caught, well, I'm sorry. It's defined this way. It says, grieved for the loss of some good, pains for some evil that has happened. But it does not ordinarily imply severe grief. And so, as I mentioned, sorry is something you say when you bump into someone or you lose uh, something that belongs to something. It's part of an apology, but it's very superficial. In fact, you can be sorry for someone else's actions. But the word repent is different and ought to be treated as different. To repent means you feel pain, that you are sorry, and that you regret something that has been done or spoken. You'll notice one of the key differences here is that you can be sorry for someone else's actions. I feel sorry that so-and-so chose this and it was a bad result. I feel sorry that so-and-so is sick or ill. But notice you never say, I repent for them. There is a key difference here. And so when the scripture says to repent, it does mean to feel pain, to be sorry, to regret your personal actions, not those of someone else. Many pastors and theologians for many years have emphasized one specific part of the word repent to the exclusion of others. And by that, what I mean is many, many times when you see the word repent, you will see one very narrow, very specific definition given. And while repent does include this concept, it includes more than just this. They will say that to repent simply implies or means that you're changing your mind and turning the other direction. That to repent simply means that you say, I don't want to sin, I want to do the right thing. And you turn 180 degrees to another direction. Many of us have probably heard this before. And I will confess that is part of repentance. The problem is how many of us have changed our mind about a certain behavior and tried to do the right thing only to fail repeatedly. No one raised your hand. I'll do it voluntarily for us. We've all done this. How many of you have gone to bed at night repenting that you did something and wanted to do something different in the morning and you wake up and do the exact same thing you did that you just said you weren't going to do? 
This is the difference and this is key. If repenting only meant trying to go toward Christ and not do evil, then most of us in this very room would say that we're trying to do that thing. But it takes the power of God to actually succeed in this. It takes the Spirit of God living inside of you to fully turn away from the sin and to go in the right path to do the right thing. And so repent is very important, and it is an important part of what we're talking about. We must have the power of the Spirit of God to fully turn away and to not sin. And we have watered down this idea, and we've just basically said, well, do you feel sorry for your sin? And somehow we think that's good enough. Or we'll say, well, if you're trying to do the good instead of the bad, then that's good enough too. The problem is, We're not fully understanding what it means to repent. We skip the pain, the true sorrow, and the regret. And we miss that it is only one person, the scripture tells us in Psalms 121, that will keep us from all evil. And that is the Lord. And so as such, I'm afraid that many people are preaching to be sorry versus repentance. And preaching, while I don't think people intend it, I think they're in preaching that, teaching that in our own strength, somehow I can turn and do the right thing. And the reality is, we can't. I think that's a very important part of what repentance is. When we realize that we are sinners and that we cannot overcome that, the only turning we do is to God for forgiveness. And through His strength, through His Spirit, we can try to do the right thing. Now, the verses I quoted for you about being sorry, and the, I'm sorry, the, not the verse, the definition I gave about sorry and repentance come from my favorite dictionary. As everyone knows, Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary. Noah Webster was a godly Christian man and wrote that dictionary full of Christian examples. And in fact, he says in one of his definitions of repentance, he says this, in theology... To sorry or to be pained for sin as a violation of God's holy law, a dishonor to his character and government, and the foulest ingratitude to a being of infinite benevolence. That's how we used to teach people. Unfortunately, his great work has been watered down. And we lose the power and the meaning behind the words that the scriptures tell us. We no longer understand exactly what it is that's important because we do not stand on foundational principle truths. We do not understand repentance because we certainly do not know the definition of it. He goes on and gives two examples. Luke 13.3, he cites right underneath that definition. Now I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. So what I'm trying to tell you is, when you hear a gospel that tells you, well, just pray this little sentence, and in there it says, I'm sorry for my sins, it is an incomplete, hollow gospel. You may truly be repentive and be saved, but I have severe 
question because we're not teaching what repentance is. We're not telling anyone that unless you truly repent, unless you know what that word means, unless the Lord has convicted you of your sins and you feel the weight of what you're doing, and part of that repentance is going to Him and confessing to the Lord, I have sinned against you and you alone, and until you receive forgiveness, you have done exactly nothing. But the world and many good-intentioned Christians want to tell you otherwise. Well, just if you feel sorry, then raise your hand if you're sorry. I understand I'm not telling you there's any works involved here. I struggled with this for a very, very long time. Because to me, I viewed that as some type of work. I had to say I was sorry enough. I had to seek repentance for so long until I earned my salvation That's not what I'm preaching here today because that is not biblical either. There is nothing I earned for my relationship with God. It is 100% His grace based on my faith alone. My asking for Him, my experiencing truly the guilt of my own sin and seeking it in repentance. Not just being a little sorry, but feeling the pain, feeling the regret for having done something against Him. Many of us have a testimony where we can say there was maybe a certain act or something of that nature that we began to realize we did not, we were sinners and needed to seek salvation. Others who are like me have a similar testimony. I remember thinking, well, I was a really good boy. And I was, and church, you'll forgive me for repeating this. I don't know what else to say sometimes, but to tell you what I've experienced. So I'll say it one more time, and I'll say it for years to come. I was a good boy. I really was. Wasn't perfect, but I wasn't doing a lot that I shouldn't. I was even reading my Bible. I was going to church. But the reality was, after leaving a church service one night where the Pastor preached on, or at least what I interpreted he preached on, the three keys to a Christian life. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself and love the world to Christ. And the thing that stuck at my heart the most is he said, the second and third thing don't matter until you get the first one right. And it suddenly dawned on me that I'd never been successful at giving my testimony to those who I was in high school with. Why? Because I didn't love the Lord with all of my heart, soul, strength, and mind. It didn't matter how many mission trips I went on. It didn't matter how much I volunteered at church and other charitable organizations. It didn't matter how good I was to my parents or my siblings or my friends or anyone. Until I loved God with all that I had, it meant exactly nothing. And I walked out of that church and I felt the conviction because I knew for the first time that I did not love God. Do you? Now hold on before you answer quickly. Really ask yourself that question. Do you love God? Because it's very, very easy for us to say, well, yes, of course I do. Look, I'm here. But the reality is, If we love the Lord our God, we will love him with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. 
And when I fell to my knees, realizing that I hadn't did that, it wasn't that I just felt sorry for it, but I was repentive of it. It broke my heart to realize I had violated his trust. As this definition says, um, God's holy law, a dishonor to his character and his government. I stood in exact opposition to God. And if you do not know him, if you have never truly repented and received salvation, then you stand in exact dishonor and against God. The foulest ingratitude to a being of infinite benevolence. Well, those are some other big words, isn't it? It means you stand in clear opposition to God. The God who wants to forgive you, the God who wants to love you, the God who wants to be all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind, who is doing everything he possibly can, just short of making you do it, to give you the opportunity to seek him in repentance, and you just put your hand up and say, no thanks. This is where we are at today. And I stand here before you and tell you that this is Nothing new. Because there were many that came to him also seeking who were not doing it with a pure heart. Let me reread Luke chapter 3, starting with verse 7 for a few verses. Listen closely to this. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Did these people come to be baptized? And John is standing there saying, you bunch of snakes. Who told you to come here to flee the wrath of God? Go away. Can you imagine? See, this is why we have a few small traditions in many of our churches today, where when someone comes to join the church, when someone comes to be baptized, we ask for a testimony of salvation because we want to hear that God has done something for you, that you are more than just a little sorry, that you have been repented for your sins, and if we'll keep reading, that you have actually changed who you are. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Prove to us that you have repented. And this is where part of that definition of repentance is correct. It is a U-turn. It is a change from who you used to be to who God wants you to be. John the Baptist is demanding that if anyone is going to come and to be baptized, you must demonstrate that you have actually been changed. Brothers and sisters, this is not a game, and this is not a social club. You do not get into the church of our Lord and Savior by simply being sorry for something you did in the past, like you bumped into someone in the grocery aisle. You must show repentance, and you must show that there has been a change in your life. The religious leaders and other gospels, it's very clear who that crowd is, were coming to him saying, we want to be baptized too. And he drove them away. Now I want to talk just briefly about an Old Testament word, a Hebrew word, called a mikvah. 
And a mikvah is the Hebrew word for uh, kind of a, a bath or anywhere that has water inside of it. And in several instances in the Old Testament, people were told to go there and to ceremonially rinse themselves. And so this was applied. I don't want to get too much into the details here, but basically in the Old Testament, if you had contact with someone who was dead, you were supposed to isolate yourself for such a period of time. If you had buried a child, you were to isolate yourself for such a period of time. If you had a monthly cycle, you were to isolate yourself for such a period of time. And then when that was completed, you would go to a mikvah and you would ceremonially dip, immerse your entire self into this water and come back out. And this was done all through the Old Testament. And in fact, I looked up, there's five or six of them within driving distance at many Jewish synagogues today. You can, well, I guess if you were Jewish, you could go and visit one of these and participate. So what does this have to do with baptism? It's not the same thing as baptism. I want to be clear with that. But there are a few things that I think are very interesting. When you went through the process of ceremonially cleansing yourself, part of that was the admission that there was something wrong. No one would go and ceremonially cleanse themselves if they didn't identify that they were dirty, if you will, from something And it's the same with baptism today. The mikvah is not what made them pure. It's what signified to those who were around that you had completed your purification and that you were coming forth. And so baptism today is similar. There is no saving grace or saving power in baptism. Rather, it is a symbol to those that you have already been saved. You are completely immersing yourself and coming out to tell the world, I realize that I have sinned, I have been saved, and I am identifying with Christ. And so for the Jewish leaders to come and to say, well, we want to be baptized too, Paul, I'm sorry, John called them on it and said, not so fast, because you will not admit that you are sinners, you have not repented, and you have not changed your ways. We must make sure that we change our ways. We must be saved. This may be part of the reason. In the book of Matthew, we see another account of this. Matthew 3, where Christ comes to be baptized. Matthew 3, 13 through 15, reads as follows. It gives a little bit more information about Christ being baptized. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. But John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. You see, if going to the mikvah and going and being baptized tells the world that you have sinned in the past, that you are cleansed now, and that you are identifying with the future death and burial of Jesus Christ. You can see where John the Baptist would say, whoa, 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 you haven't sinned. You don't need to be ceremonially clean because you are. And Jesus Christ said, basically, even so, do it to fulfill 
all righteousness. And so we see here John pushing back and saying, no, no, I need to be baptized by you. Why? Because Christ had committed no sin. Because there was no need to even demonstrate the righteousness that might come from baptism and salvation because Christ didn't need to be saved because he is the saving agent. And so the religious leaders who would not admit their guilt were not allowed to be baptized. And again, this goes back to our tradition when we have you Come forward, share your testimony, let us hear about your repentance, let us hear about how your life has changed since you've come to know the Lord, and we say, yes, now we are interested in baptizing you. The answer is very simple. Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God, and John would have baptized you. And so we see a very clear explanation of what's going on here. We see conviction. We see repentance, we see salvation, we see fruit, and then we see baptism. Which is why over and over and over again in all the examples we have, there is clearly a moment of salvation followed by baptism. Baptism does not save us and it does not go before our salvation. Going back to Luke, verse 16 explains that I baptize by water. But one is coming soon who will baptize by the Holy Spirit. See here shortly, I will baptize by water. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit, your salvation is what is utterly important. And I cannot do anything with that. That is between you and the Lord. That comes at the moment that you are saved, when you realize you're lost, when you repent, when you earnestly put your faith in Him and He forgives you. That is the moment that the Spirit of God baptizes you into His body. What I am doing is only baptizing with water. I have no control. I cannot save an individual. And this water baptism adds nothing to your salvation. 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jew or Greek, slave or free. We are all made to drink of one spirit. All of us. Now the caveat there is he's writing to the Christians and Corinthians. All of us who have been saved have been baptized by the same spirit of God. It's beautiful. The moment you were saved, you're baptized in the body of Christ. So the question comes, then why do we have this water baptism? If we're baptized into the Spirit when we are convicted, when we repent, and when we seek God in faith, then what are we doing here this afternoon? The Christian water baptism illustrates in a very dramatic way the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when we baptize, we are illustrating that Christ, our Lord and Savior, died. He was buried, if you will, underwater, but in a tomb. And that he was raised to walk. And that we, like Christ, will die to our sins when we put our faith in him after we've been convicted and repented. We will be raised and baptized in the spirit and we will be raised to walk in newness of life. And see, I hope you're following, given my current state this morning, that this comes full circle. 
And when we tell people that part of repentance is in fact turning and going a new direction, as I said, that is in fact true. But this comes when Christ saves you. He takes away the desires of your life to commit sin, and he puts inside of you the desire to follow after him and produce fruit, to produce the good things that God tells us to do. Now, do we do this perfectly? Absolutely not. But it is our desire. This is the change that can only come from His power. You can come to me today and confess something to me, and you're welcome to do that. I cannot take that desire away from you. I can't hardly take it away from myself when I have something that I desire. I certainly can't do it from you. It is God and God alone who can change the desires of your heart. And when you are saved, the Bible tells us you are a new creature, a new creation. The sinner confesses to the Lord. And he dies to a sin. Romans 6, 11 says, So you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God and Jesus Christ. This is part of that turning process where you begin to shun the old ways. And is raised to walk in a brand new life. Colossians 2, 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Being submerged in the water represents death to sin. Emerging from the water represents the cleansed holy life that follows from salvation. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was buried, well, I'm sorry, was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so baptism is the symbol of what has already occurred in the heart and life of one who's trusted Christ. Water baptism is not a requirement for salvation. We see this repeatedly through Scripture, repeatedly. That there can be and is, in fact, salvation before baptism. To say otherwise is an attack, I believe, on the resurrection of Christ and is in fact a heresy. And you would interpret that as a belief that goes against the official position of Scripture. I want to read Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 briefly. We'll come to a close. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You can turn there, but many of you don't need to. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of His work, so that no one may boast. See, I said sometimes people are so desperate to see people come to know the Lord that we remove many important aspects of salvation. We'll take away repentance because, ugh, that doesn't feel good. But that's the point. We'll take away even faith by watering it down. Last preacher I heard say this. I probably should have stood up and said something, but I didn't. He said, well, all the faith you need is 
Just like you would when you get on an elevator and push the button. You just have faith it's going to go somewhere. You ever heard explanations like that? All the faith you need to get saved is just like you believe water is going to come out of the faucet when you turn it. If you didn't know what an elevator was and you couldn't see it, would you have faith in it? If you'd never used a faucet before and didn't know the water would come out, could you possibly have faith in that? See, having a faith in the Lord is deeper than just mentally believing, well, an elevator I get on, I push the button and it goes out. Or I turn the faucet and it comes out. Because we know the outcome. None of us have ever seen God. So how do you have faith in Him? You have to actually have real faith. Turning a faucet isn't faith. That's experience. Getting on an elevator and pushing a button to take you to a different floor doesn't come from a semblance of faith. It comes from an experience of over and over and over again knowing that that's the way it works. And so I shudder when I see people come and say, well, if I had a gift and wanted to give it to you, wouldn't you take it? So let me rephrase this. Imagine somebody comes to your door and tells you about this wonderful gift and they open their hands and say, see, it's right here. Take it. You think they're crazy because you can't see it, can you? Because there is nothing there that you know of. And so when we talk about a saving faith, understand that you have to have faith in something that you can't see or touch or taste or smell and may have never experienced before. And so it takes a great amount of actual faith to believe in Jesus Christ. And we water it down. We take away the need for repentance and we take away the need for faith and we lead millions of people astray. Tell them, well, just simply believe and tell them you're sorry. And we've taken the power of the gospel. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. And so understand what I am saying and what I am not. It is God's grace, His unmerited favor, His mercy, and His love for us. He wants all of us to know Him. And it is through our faith in Him, not our own doing, not our works, it is His simple gift. But it is not just as simple as taking a gift that someone gives you or turning on a faucet. It is more complicated than that. It is not the result of our works. No matter how much I try to be good, it is never enough. No matter how many times we baptize somebody, it is never enough. It is only through faith. And faith comes through conviction and through repentance. And so we can ask you today, what about you? We have two who this afternoon we will baptize based on their previous testimony of their conviction and their faith, of their repentance. And yes, even because I asked both of you, their fruits since. How have things changed in their lives? And we hear this and we praise the Lord for continuing to work in the lives of both very young and we'll just say a little bit older. But we know that all need to be saved.
all need to experience the conviction that comes from realizing that we are sinners. All need to truly repent to the Lord and put their faith in Him. That can be hard. It can be hard. In fact, it can be so hard that some people can struggle for years. Some people can come down every Sunday and cry out to God. Never either truly putting their faith in Him or never truly being repentive. Sometimes because it's never been taught. Sometimes because we won't give up whatever it is that's holding us back. That comes down to pride, doesn't it? Sometimes we're not willing to give in to the Lord. We may know the truth up here, but we haven't truly experienced the truth in here. And so as we prepare to go and to celebrate what has happened in the past in the lives of two men today, I want to give you an opportunity. Maybe you're sitting here today and you are realizing for the first time, or maybe the third or fourth or fifth or 23rd time, that you are not saved, that you have failed to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Maybe you have been dependent on doing good works to get into heaven. The Bible says it's not going to happen. Maybe you've been dependent, like the Jews have said, on who your parents are. It doesn't make a difference. The only thing that matters is whether you respond to him, whether you've been convicted in your heart, whether you have been repentive, and whether you have sought in faith his forgiveness and received it. And when you have, then you will be set 180 degrees. Then you will have the new life, and you will shun the things of the past and want to move toward the right things to do. And when you testify to us, we will celebrate with you. Why? Because we have all experienced the same things. It's one of the few things we have in common. Different times, different methods, different places, but the exact same salvation. And so whether it's in a car or outside of a church building or in a church building or at your pew when you refuse to leave or down here at the altar, no matter where or when, we have experienced coming to God in the same way for thousands of years. And that is comforting and exciting. And it's important to know that God is still forgiving those who need to be forgiven. And so as we have a time of invitation, I ask you, are you saved? Are you experiencing the conviction? Are you seeking the repentance? If you are, if you are experiencing that deep trouble that the verse, I'm sorry, that the definition gave, not just being sorry for something, but realizing the weight of what you've done, then I beg you, literally, to go to him, to fall on your knees, whether you physically do it or metaphorically do it, to bow before him and say, God, help me. And as those of us who have experienced that help will tell you, and as frustrating as this may be for some of you, you'll know it when it happens. Because something 
will be different. That condemnation will be gone. That burden will be lifted. Your heart will seem different. And for those of you, and I promise I'm going to close, who may have experienced this conviction in the past and you've shoved it away, See, it takes the rest of that, too. Just being convicted of your sins and knowing where you stand before God isn't enough. It comes down to repenting and faith. And so if you know in the past that God has dealt with your heart, if you know in the past that God has revealed himself to you and you have pushed him away, then I beg you to stop doing that today and go to him in prayer. Timmy, I'll just go ahead and use you as an example real quick. I know you don't care. I bet if you could do it again, you'd be David's age when you gave your life to him, wouldn't you? Don't wait. Oh, we're thankful for you, brother. Thankful that you had the desire to know the Lord. Thankful that you... Confess to the Lord that you came to know him, that he knows you. Thankful that you stood here and said, I got it wrong for many years, but I have it right now because I know what God did for me. Because that is a testimony that we all need to hear. Those who are here who are younger, do not waste your life. Because if you are not saved, if you are not following the Lord, then none of it matters. And you can fight against it your whole life. And in fact, at some point, you can even push it away and that knock that God may have put on your heart gets really, really hard to hear. If you hear it at all today, then do something about it.